How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started in our study this evening, as is our pattern, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer first so that you can take advantage of that time to in silent prayer, make sure that you're in fellowship by confessing any known sins to God. And we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which restores us to fellowship so that we can resume our walk by means of the Spirit. So we'll, after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our fathers, we study our way through Romans were reminded again and again of your absolute righteousness and how that righteousness is displayed in human history through your grace and it's compatible with your grace as you have provided a perfect way of salvation through the imputation of your righteousness to us by faith in Christ. Therefore, we are justified by faith and not by works. And then as an extension of that, understanding what happens at salvation when we are justified in terms of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then that is the basis for our sanctification. But as we've studied this in Romans, it then raises a question in the minds of some as to how your righteousness works its way out with Israel. And Father, that's the topic we began this evening in Romans 9. We pray that uh, we might uh, learn a tremendous amount as we study this. There are some challenging passages in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to work through, but also the very important uh, truth that Israel has not been permanently set aside, but that there is a temporary pause in your plan for Israel. It is not that you are angry with Israel for any specific reason, other than their rejection of Messiah, but this has not brought an extra special judgment upon them other than uh, the judgment of A.D. 70, and that it is not within the purview of the church or the Gentiles or anyone to uh, add to that burden of their scattering, but it is our responsibility to bless Israel and to bless the descendants of Abraham as you have uh, determined that they are your people and that they are the apple of your eye. So, Father, as we study these things tonight and in the coming weeks, we pray that we might uh, really be challenged to have our eyes opened in the way that you have developed your grace in relation to Israel and how that is a model and pattern for your grace toward us as believers in Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And we're going to move into the next section, which hangs by itself, Romans 9, uh, 9, 10, and 11. And uh, we often speak of the church age, and since we're going to be talking about God's plan for Israel, uh, we often talk about the church age as the great parenthesis. But I learned, because I've never heard this before, I learned something new on this trip to Israel, and that is that in many churches, when they do a series on Romans, Romans 9 to 11 is the great parenthesis. And Romans is ex, the exposition of Romans jumps from Romans 8 to Romans 12. And Romans 9 to 11 is ignored in uh, a number of churches. So uh, that was sort of a new insight 
that I picked up on the trip, among many, many others. But that uh, tells us something of the importance of Romans 9 to 11, especially in light of today with the rise of Israel coming back, the Jews coming back to the land starting in the mid to early 19th century and then just exploding in the first, second, third aliyahs around the turn of the 20th century, and then the establishment of a Jewish state in 1948, something that has never, ever happened in history uh, happen, and that is the resurrection of a people in their uh, historic homeland uh, based on the plan of God. And that hasn't happened to in any other ethnic group where they have been restored once they have lost their historic homeland. You can think through history going back into ancient history with the Assyrians, uh, with the Parthians, with the... Um, uh, Romans later on with the Celts, the Picts, the Saxons. You know, history moves on. But the Jewish people were expelled from their land in AD 70 and have returned almost to the point where it, we're, we're within a very short time of the of an equilibrium where there are as many Jews, there will be as many Jews living in the land as outside of the land. And that has not happened since 586 BC. In fact, it might not have been that true at that point because you had already had the ten northern tribes expelled in 722. So it has been an extremely long time since there has been a major Jewish, a dominant Jewish presence in the land since the first group was expelled by God in, in 722. So this is, this is significant, and this is why there's been so much last day's chatter and excitement and stimulation and everything. And so we'll talk about some of those things as we go through this chapter. But we need to understand a little bit about its context before we uh, go much further. At the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul has been talking about the faithful love of God and God's faithfulness and the fact that uh, that his promise can be counted on. And he concludes that great chapter with the final statement in verses 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the focal point of those last uh, nine verses has been on the faithfulness of God. What can separate us from God? Who can bring a charge against God, God's elect? Uh, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And yet, remember at this time, the population of the church still had a large Jewish segment to it. Even in Rome, there was a large Jewish component uh, in Rome. And those from a Jewish background would be raising the question, well, wait a minute. Uh, how can we count on God's faithfulness? Faithfulness. It seems like he has turned his back on the Jews. It's like he's turned his back on Israel, and Israel is no longer significant. And so Paul is going to shift gears in the beginning of chapter 9 to talk about God's continued plan and purpose for Israel, that even though Israel, as he says at the beginning of Romans chapter 11, that many in Israel have hardened their heart, and turned away from God, rejected his Messiah, Jesus. Nevertheless, God has not turned his back permanently on Israel, has not forgotten them, that there is a God is still going to be faithful to his promises in the Mosaic Covenant 
to restore Israel to the land. Now, um, an important question someone might ask is if the Abrahamic covenant was temporary, if it wasn't permanent, and that was uh, that was uh, no longer the fact that Christ's death, as Paul says uh, in in Romans uh, 14, is the Christ's death is the end of the law. If that's true, then these promises for a return that are in Leviticus 26 and De- and Deuteronomy 30, then those would be thrown out as well. And the the answer to that is that those promises that God gave that he embedded in the Mosaic law that he would return them permanently to the land is simply an addendum at the end of the Mosaic law to affirm the fact that he is still true to the promise that he made to Abraham that this land would belong to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants in perpetuity forever. And that that even though God would implement the uh, disciplinary actions of removing the Israel, the ethnic Israel from the land that God had promised them, according to uh, the, the judgment stipulations in uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God would remain faithful to his promise to Abraham and would bring them back. So that's kind of how that fits together. But I want to wrap up one little thing very briefly that was a little point of confusion at the end of the last class. Uh, before we uh, go forward. If you just look at Romans 8.36 for just a minute, there is a quotation there from uh, the Psalms, from Psalm uh, 44.22, actually. And last week, the only thing I had up on the screen, and when I uh, dealt with this, it was uh, in light of 42.23, and that confused everybody as well it should. I was doing my studying in reference to the Hebrew text, and there are some verses in some psalms that are numbered differently in the Masoretic text than in the English Bible. Frequently in the psalms, the Hebrew verses are one verse off from the English. But in this case, it's two chapters and one verse off. So that Psalm 42.23 in the Masoretic text there's Psalm 44:22, and I was going through that towards the end of class the last time. Afterwards, about five people mobbed me up here, going, "Wait a minute! What? Wait! 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 Where were you? What? What? That's not what's in my Bible." And that's the issue: is the the, the just numbered differently. And I had uh, uh, <clears throat> unwittingly typed in the uh, verse from the notes I was looking at from the Hebrew text instead of the. English text, so you can uh, correct your notes on that. Maybe that will help settle a few things. Okay, as we come to Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9 is is the introduction to this section on God's continued plan for Israel. And in Romans chapter 9, God is, uh, excuse me, Paul is going to establish the justice of God in relation to uh, Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Now, there's several things we're going to have to deal with in this that are very important and, and, and germane to some trends that are going on in uh, Bible study and theology today that you may or may not run into, but you ought to be aware uh, of, of these things that are going on. Uh, one of these trends is that uh, that's cropped up. I referenced this on Thursday night in our study in Acts, is that there has been a trend among some evangelicals to deny 
uh, the reality of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. In fact, I, in the last couple of days, I, I, I've got a great video of a lecture that um, Dr. Michael Rydelnik gave at Liberty, uh, Liberty University uh, about a month ago, I think, at the invitation of Randy Price, who's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at, uh, at Liberty. Uh, my, Dr. Rydelnik is the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute, and graduated from Dallas Seminary three or four years after I was there. I think we overlapped a year. And uh, he points out in this particular video lecture that when he first uh, was interviewing the faculty members at Dallas Seminary in 1979, that at that time there was only uh, one professor, he continues to be the only professor who believes in things like a literal six consecutive 24-hour day creation week and many other things. But there was only one, one professor that held to uh, the fact that the Old Testament was, was filled with messianic prophecies. And I had not realized that most of the Old Testament department, when I was there, I was a Hebrew major, and that most of the Old Testament faculty did not believe that, that that at most they believed there was one clear messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, and that was Psalm 110.1. When my Lord, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands and I will make your enemies my footstool. That, in the opinion of some evangelicals, is the only genuine messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And that, that is not true at all. And that shows the in, influence of a pernicious error that had invaded as early as the Protestant Reformation from a string of anti-Messianic interpretations that came out of the development of rabbinic Judaism. But it took a thousand years for, for rabbinic Judaism to really come up with answers to Christians' use of Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. A lot of Jews were getting converted as they read Isaiah 53, as they read read, uh, Isaiah uh, 714 and Isaiah 9-6. These passages resonated with Messianic implications as they read Psalm 22. But when you listen to some Old Testament scholars today, even among evangelicals, they do not believe these are messianic at all, that they were fulfilled historically, but they just had sort of an application in some general sense to uh, the Messiah, and that the disciples just used that and sort of reshaped these things, and and, uh, that's just not true. And I pointed out uh, Thursday night, I'll keep reminding you of this, is that when the uh, scribes known as the Masoretes uh, solidified the current text that we use called the Masoretic Text, uh, which, was, uh, which was solidified and formalized between 300 and 900 A.D., when, as they did that, they added vowel, what's called vowel points or vowels to a consonantal script, which is all that the Hebrew text was. And in some ways, they changed words. We had a great example in our study on Tuesday night of Isaiah 
uh, cha- I mean of uh, Amos uh, chapter nine verse twelve, where it talked about the remnant of Edom, which would have made that prophetic um, uh, pro- that that prophecy there to have been fulfilled historically with Edom, but the the consonants in Edom are the same as the consonants in Adam. And so if you just change the vowels, you change the word, and from the remnant of Edom to the remnant of mankind, which throws the significance of that whole prophecy into a kingdom or millennial messianic kingdom uh, fulfillment, indicating that that's a messianic prophecy. So intricate things like that happen and have really uh, disrupted things. In, in the Protestant Reformation, a lot of uh, uh, pastors... Uh, and scholars, theologians, went to rabbis to learn Hebrew. That was the only place they could learn Hebrew. And in the course of that, some of them were influenced by the thinking of a 11th century rabbi by the name of Rashi, who originated a lot of these uh, alternate interpretations. And so they filtered into the church and they into the evangelical church, and they've been there all along. Well, we're going to see that that uh, in a number of ways, and I've done studies on this before, that this is not uh, this is not true. That these are there are genuine messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Michael Rydelnik has been as spearheaded the scholarship on this uh, with his book, The Messianic Hope, uh, which is very technical. If you don't know Hebrew, it's it, you, you'll catch some of the things, but but it really gets into intricacies of a lot of these details and is, is uh, really tremendous. And he's done a good work. He's working now on a on a messianic commentary on the Old Testament, and I'm really looking forward to the work that he's going to do. Anyhow, so we're going to get into some of those issues because uh, the Old Testament clearly predicted a Messiah, that he would be the son of Jesse, the son of David, that he, I mean, the son of David, the son of Jesse, and that he would be of the tribe of Judah, that um, numerous other things, born in Bethlehem, uh, that he would be crucified uh, between thieves and that he would be betrayed and the price of his betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver and on and on. And these were very, very clear prophecies uh, from the Old Testament. And so that's part of what we'll look at. But some other things that we're going to have to look at are the trend towards replace the resurrection or repopularity of replacement theology today. But it goes by some other names. We're also going to have to look at some things uh, related to uh, interpretation, uh, literal versus allegorical interpretation, and uh, we're going to also have to look at the rise of anti-Semitism. And Romans 9 through 11 is really at the core of understanding those types of things that are going on, and they are as much present with us today as they've ever been. And while anti-Semitism uh, sort of uh, went underground for a while after the Holocaust. It is uh, rearing its ugly head in many ways uh, currently, and it's not only in is through the influence of Islam, but through the influence of a lot of uh, Christians who have never um, uh, really understood the significance of these issues and how it's related to uh, uh, the interpretation factor and some other things. So we'll be hitting on all of these as we go through our study in Romans chapter 9. So let's just look at the introduction here. The first uh, five verses provide us with an introduction to these three chapters. It's going to begin with a very personal statement by the Apostle Paul 
uh, related to his uh, deep care and concern and his emotional distress over the fact that his people, his... Hello? Well, that happened the other night, didn't it? Okay. Um, just wanted to wake me up from jet lag. All right. So uh, where was I? This, this is an extremely personal statement expressing his deep concern, deep compassion, and his, his distress and sorrow over the fact that his, his countrymen, his family perhaps, his loved ones, his kinsmen have rejected uh, the claims of Yeshua of Nazareth to be the Messiah. And so uh, he, ex- he begins by expressing this. Let me just read through the first five verses, then I want to make some uh, introductory comments here as we uh, lay the groundwork for getting into the chapter. He starts off, very personal statement, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who were Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Six important things that lock down Israel as still uh, having uh, a, a relationship to all of those. Uh, of whom, that is, of Israel, are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. A couple of things to comment on. He starts off saying, I tell the truth in Christ. He's not just making an assertion that he is telling the truth, but that he is telling the truth in Christ, that he is using the phrase in Christ here in more than simply a positional sense. He is in Christ positionally, but just because we are in Christ positionally doesn't mean we can't be out of fellowship at the same time that we are positionally in Christ. So here is one of the rare times that Paul uses the phrase uh, in Christo when it is not uh, alluding to being in Christ positionally, but is talking uh, more of a fellowship-type aspect. It is a reference in context because it is, uh, it is a parallel to uh, the phrase in the Holy Spirit in Numiti Hagioi in the next line, uh, and I think both here uh, should relate to, uh, rather than this being in Christ, uh, I think it should be understood instrumentally, uh, a rare usage of that, but I think it makes sense in the context. I tell the truth in Christ is parallel to bearing witness by the Holy Spirit. And so both of these ends in English should be probably translated or understood to be an instrumental by, B-Y, so that would be better to understand in the sense, I tell the truth by Christ, I do not lie, uh, <clears throat> my conscience, that's the subject of the next line, my conscience bearing joint witness with me 
by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit is the agent of inspiration, according to uh, 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, that this is the Holy Spirit is the one who moves the writers of Scripture along, that God breathes out his word through the writers of Scripture, according to 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, Uh, All Scripture is God-breathed. God is the active sense there. He's the one breathing out through the writers of Scripture, but the Holy Spirit is the active agent in overseeing the uh, the the writing of Scripture. So this is an inspiration in the way that we think of Shakespeare as being inspired, or we may think of uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, some other writer being inspired, of Michelangelo being inspired. Of that that sense, this is the sense of someone who is being breathed through, in a sense, by God, so that it, God is guaranteeing that the result of what he is doing is without error. So Paul is affirming that what he is saying here is not his opinion, but it is the revelation of God. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness by means of the Holy Spirit. And then he reflects upon his own state of mind. He says that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And here's another one of those uses of heart. Many times, in fact, the vast majority of times, it refers to the thinking portion of the brain. But here it refers to the innermost part of man, his his core, the core of his being, which in this case, heart would be a synonym for his soul. And that he is, uh, when he thinks about the rejection of Jesus as Messiah by the Jewish people, by his people, he has great sorrow and grief. Now, this is important to understand because somehow along the line, there are some Christians who get the idea that having any kind of emotion is somehow wrong and having some sort of negative emotion is sin. And that's not true. Jesus is described as having gone through great emotional distress in the garden the night before he went to the cross. He was in turmoil under such pressure that he sweated blood, the the Scripture says. This is not an unknown phenomenon. It's not something unique to Jesus. It it happens with people who are under extreme distress that the uh, tiny capillaries uh, just under the skin are, are, uh, uh, expel blood through the pores of the skin, so it appears that they are sweating blood because they're under such emotional distress. Having emo- certain emotions is not necessarily sinful. It is acting wrongly upon that emotional pressure when it becomes a sin. So we may have certain emotions present, but acting wrongly upon them is what makes that a sin. So we can have sorrow and grief, and we can operate it on that, and we can have a great little pity party. And we can just go out and we can cry and moan and and feel sorry for ourselves and get all worked up and all depressed and negative because we had sorrow over things. But, But Christ himself sorrows in the garden, and Paul himself says in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, 
that when someone close to us dies, we, we, we sorrow or we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. He doesn't say you don't grieve because you have hope. He says you don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve, we're sorrowful, and we miss uh, those individuals that have departed from this life and have gone to be with the Lord. We know that we will be gathered together with them in the in the uh, clouds to be with the Lord forever and re- be reunited. But nevertheless, we miss those people. And it's okay to miss people. And it's okay to feel a little sad and sorrowful at times because they're, they're not here and we enjoy them and they're gone. Uh, it's the same way if you have a close friend and they move across the country and you don't get to uh, see them or spend time with them uh, like as you would like. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. It's not something that leads us into a pity party and, and uh, uh, guilt trip or so great sorrow or anything like that. It is simply a legitimate reality that because we live in a fallen world, we're going to experience certain uh, of these kinds of emotions. So Paul expresses this, and it's a very honorable and righteous reason for his sorrow, and that is the recognition that his loved ones his kindred people have rejected Christ as Savior. And so it brings him great sorrow and uh, continual, ongoing is the word there, adioleptos. It's the same word that is used in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 5 when it talks about pray without ceasing. Same word. He continuously. Now, it's like a hacking cough. It's not something that's there every second of every minute, every minute of every day, but it's something there that is there on an ongoing, on an ongoing basis. So he has, uh, this, this sense of, of sorrow, sense of grief, because his people have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And then he says in verse three, for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, here we have the word anathema, which is the word that's usually translated a curse. But we get this word curse, and automatically we think of some kind of shaman or witch doctor, juju black magic, casting a, a, a black evil spell on somebody. And that's as far from the biblical concept as it could possibly be. The word indicates something that comes under divine judgment. And so Paul says, I could wish that I myself were judged, were the, were judged accursed in the sense judged, was judged apart from Christ. And so he is basically saying, I would rather lose my salvation and give that, give up my salvation so that all of my countrymen could be saved than to go on and be saved with, with them lost. So it's a, it's a hyperbolic statement. He doesn't literally mean that he wishes he would give up his salvation, but it expresses the, the deep pangs of sorrow that he expresses and his genuine concern for the salvation of his kinsmen. So he says, I wish that I myself were judged or come under a judgment or accursed or separated from Christ on behalf of my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Now, what he means by according to the flesh here is not according to the sin nature. Flesh is often used that way. But in terms of their genetic relationship, 
their ethnic relationship. So he recognizes an ethnic unity with uh, a, a group of people identified as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom he describes in this passage as Israelites. And in verse 4, he says, who are Israelites, that is the descendants of, of Jacob. Jacob was given the name Israel, meaning prince with God, uh, Israel by God himself when he, when, uh, uh, Yaakov, Jacob wrestled with the angel at a place called Peniel on the Jabbok River across the Jordan in what is now uh, the Hashemite kingdom of, of Jordan. And the angel uh, slapped him on his, on his hip, rendered him uh, uh, weak in his leg. And so there was a constant reminder there. Uh, but that Jacob is given that new name uh, indicating his, his new identity. Good night. Okay, so he says, uh, uh, of whom, of whom the Israelites pertain or belong, the adoption, the adoption as the firstborn of God, identified as such in Exodus chapter nineteen, uh, they are adopted. They are have received, therefore, the glory of God by virtue of their position and relationship to God in the Old Testament. The covenants, that's a reference to all of the covenants from Genesis 12 on, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the uh, new covenant, I mean the Davidic covenant and the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Those all pertain to Israel. I think in context, looking at the totality of Romans 9 to 11, he has primarily in mind the permanent covenants, not the Mosaic covenant. The giving of the law, that is the Mosaic law, the service, that is they were called to be a king, they were adopted as the firstborn of God to be given the... Um, the service to be a kingdom of priests, not just the Levites as priests, but the whole nation serving as a kingdom of priests in relation to all of the other nations. This was a position of high honor. And the promises. So all of those promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob related to the eternal possession of the land, the promise in the land covenant that the land would be uh, belong to Israel in perpetuity, the promises of the new covenant, all these promises still belong to Israel, that they are not lost or abrogated by Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So this gives us one of the strongest biblical texts against the view that is known as replacement theology, which essentially, I covered this the other night briefly, we're going to get into it in much more detail, uh, is the idea that, that the church completely replaces Israel and God's plan, and God has no future use for Israel. There's nothing significant anymore about Israel or the Jewish people or the land over there in the in the Middle East. So that is the view. Now this goes back to an understanding of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So I want you to turn with me there for uh, just a minute, and we're going to review the foundation summary of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant itself is not clearly stated until... 
uh, Genesis 15, and then it is activated and actually cut or formalized in Genesis 17. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord says to Abram, Lech Lecha, get out, go, move out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So Abraham has no idea what the land's going to be yet, which way he's going to go, other than he's told to leave his home. This was in Ur of the Chaldees, in what is now uh, Iraq, in the southern part of Iraq. And he heads up the Euphrates River north to a place called Haran, which is now in the northern part of modern Syria. And he's going to remain there for a while until his father dies before God takes him the rest of the way to the land that he will show him. Then in verse 2, God says, I will make you a great nation. And he says, I will bless you and make your name great. Those are personal promises to Abram, Abram, Avram himself. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, he's not making a declarative statement there that you will be a blessing. He's making an imperatival statement. You are going to be a blessing. It is a mandate to Abram to be a blessing to those around him. And this is one of the uh, really remarkable things that uh, we see in the modern state of Israel. This, this principle that the Jewish people are to be a blessing to the world is played out in modern rabbinic Judaism under a principle that has, uh, under Kabbalah, it's got some really weird pantheistic ideas, and there's a lot of uh, notions attached to it that, that uh, uh, we certainly wouldn't, wouldn't affirm. But the core idea is uh, it's called tikkun olam, meaning to repair the world. And it's the idea that is the role of Jewish people to do what they can to serve others in the world, to improve their lot, to make things better for everyone. And I believe this is an application or outgrowth of this principle that they are to be a blessing uh, to the world. And as the Jews have returned to Israel, uh, they have been a remarkable blessing to the world. They have received numerous uh, Nobel Prizes in uh, fields as medicine, chemistry, economics, physics, literature. They have developed um, uh, biological pacemakers. They've developed uh, DNA nanocomputers which detect cancer cells. They've uh, they've had these little camera pills have been de- were uh, invented in Israel that you can swallow and uh, uh, your uh, gastroenterologist can take pictures all the way down through your uh, your system from your esophagus till it exits and get all kinds of wonderful pictures and see what's going on inside of you. That's all a result of, uh, of uh, Jewish technology. They've developed a number of different things in terms of uh, pharmaceutical research, new drugs to treat uh, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease. They've also done remarkable work with stem cell research in treating um, uh, uh, multiple sclerosis. I have a friend who, here who is, I, I'm not going to mention his, his business, but you can drive down the freeway here on the Beltway and you can go about four miles down and on the left you'll see his, uh, you'll see the uh, corporate headquarters for his furniture business around the country. And he and I were in first grade through high school together. He is on 
international boards for I don't know how many Jewish organizations. His wife, when I first met her about five or six years ago at an APAC policy conference, uh, could barely walk. She was either uh, in a wheelchair, cane, uh, and she, she had a Segway also, I think. And, uh, but she didn't walk very well because of MS. Uh, recently I've seen her run. You'd think that she ran into Jesus. But um, she has been going to, they've been, uh, uh, bought a home in Israel. He divides up his time halfway between here and Israel. And she's been going through stem cell treatment at Hadassah Hospital for her MS. And it took about two years. And you would not have a clue that there was a time that this woman uh, didn't walk or could barely walk. I mean, there's absolutely almost no sign of the disease whatsoever. Now, of course, none of that's available in the U.S. because our lovely uh, FDA won't allow that. But in Israel, they have made remarkable advances in the treatment of, of, of diseases. Uh, Microsoft, in terms of technology, Microsoft and Cisco companies have their uh, their only research and development facilities outside the U.S. are in Israel. Intel has their largest uh, uh, factory in Israel. When, uh, I guess it was on uh, Wednesday of last week, I drove down to the Negev. That's the Hebrew word for south. That's the, the southern desert area. And drove down uh, near, I was headed down, didn't go to Sterot. I'd already been there the week before, but headed down that way, down towards Beersheba and went past the Intel plant, and just absolutely enormous. But Intel there has developed many things. Uh, the use of voicemail technology originated in Israel. Uh, Pentium 3, Pentium 4 chips developed in Israel. Uh, they, they are... They, there's a great book out if you want to read about this uh, called The Startup Nation uh, by Dan Sr. And it is absolutely fabulous to read. And if you are at all interested in business, in technology, in leadership, uh, in innovation, then that's a book for you to read. And it's, it shows the connection between uh, their military culture and the way they develop leaders within the military. They have universal military service in Israel and how this plays a role in, um, in the corporate world. Because when you go get a job in Israel after you get out of the army or after you get out of college, the first question they ask you is, what unit were you in in the IDF? Oh, yeah, well, my Uncle Joe was in that unit or my cousin so-and-so was in that unit or, or whatever, and they know everybody, and they know exactly what you did. Uh, you'll be, be interviewed for a spot, and they know exactly what your background is, what your capabilities are, what your training was. Uh, when you go into the IDF when you're 18 years of age, until you come out of the reserves when you're 44, you uh, are with the same group the entire time. So you develop a, a bond and a care and concern for one another all the way through. Uh, it's just remarkable. But that, that the leadership style that developed within the military culture comes over into the corporate world. And it's not the same kind of military culture here. Because here you'll have a commanding officer will come back and your uh, company commander will come back and tell the uh, uh, first lieutenant that uh, this is our mission, this is what we're going to do, and you're gonna, he's going to call in his platoon leaders and tell them what their different assignments are going to be. They're going to go back to their uh, platoons and divide their squads up and say this is what you're going to do. And everybody's going to say yes or yes or three bags full, and they're going to go out and, and do the mission. But in the Israeli army, they're going to say, wait a minute, that's nuts. You've got a screw loose. 
this is why that's not going to work. And then they will have a rousing debate back and forth, and in the process of that give and take, they're going to come up with a much better plan, and, and, and they're going to demonstrate ingenuity and innovation and, and, and uh, uh, creativity in the whole process, and then they're going to come up with a, uh, probably a better plan and then go execute it. That doesn't play well in the American corporate world or in the military. They don't know how to handle that, but it is very much part of Israeli culture. And so <laughs> Tim's shaking his head. And it blows, it absolutely blows away the American corporate world when they start interacting with Israeli counterparts and start watching them when they do this. But read the book. I, I recommend it. it, it it's got uh, great ideas in there for, for some ways that we could do things a little differently and a little better in learning from the Jewish people. So they've also done a lot of development in, um, in the, um, in the medical field. Uh, 90% of, for example, 90% of American battlefield deaths, uh, occur, uh, have occurred before the wounded ever get to a field hospital. And half of those are due to bleeding out. But an Israeli co- company called First Care, uh, addressed this by developing what's called a life-saving bandage, which is now carried by every U.S. soldier in the field. And this was used in, to stem the blood loss of Congressman uh, Gabby Giffords when she was uh, shot in the head. Uh, somebody had this uh, life care bandage in the uh, ambulance that uh, the, the uh, EMTs had, and they applied it, and that stemmed the loss of blood. So that has saved an untold number of lives. They're also doing a lot with robotics now. Um, you can uh, find some video on this. I forget what it's what the term for it is, but uh, they've developed basically an exoskeleton that fits that uh, that fits on the legs of a of a paralyzed person and enables them to walk again. And uh, it's just incredible technology. Uh, we also had a briefing when, when we were there with a uh, uh, former uh, or retired IDF colonel who was a spokesperson for the uh, for the IDF. For a number of years, and she's with an organization called Natal, which has developed the foremost treatment in the world for treating PTSD. Because if you live in about 30% of Israel, you're having to deal with PTSD. If you live down in Sterot or Ashkelon, Beersheba, or some of those places where they get regular rocket fire from Gaza, there's a high level of, of PTSD. And uh, you go to some place like we did at Kfar Gaza, which is a kibbutz about uh, 100 yards off the border with Gaza, 75% of the residents there have been directly uh, affected. I'm not going to use the word impacted because that would be a poor pun, but they have been directly affected by rocket fire from uh, terrorists from Gaza. So this um, this is a reality there, and they're doing remarkable things. And some Americans have taken notice of what Natal is doing. They're starting to do some test projects with the U.S. in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, starting this year, and some other things like that that are having a tremendous uh, impact. Um, they've also developed a medical uh, tool uh, called Indopat, which is a cuff that... Uh, uh, measures blood pressure from your fingers and can perform a complete heart analysis in five minutes and predict whether someone will have a heart attack within the next seven years. So they are at the cutting edge, and this technology works its way out to the rest of the world. Israel is blessing uh, the rest of the world. When it comes to agriculture, 
I can't even remember all the things that we saw. We went to a, the Volcani Institute, which is a, one of the uh, development centers for their uh, Department of Agriculture, and they showed us many of the things that they were developing there in relation to ag- agriculture. They developed a hybrid um, uh, seedless uh, mandarin, I think it was mandarin orange, that is uh, exported all over the world. They're trying to grow it in certain other places right now in South America and some other places, working that out so that they share the wealth voluntarily. It's not socialism. They share this with other countries. Last year when I was over there, we had some people uh, talking to us from the Department of Agriculture and how the uh, Israelis help uh, the agriculture in many of the countries in Africa. They're dealing with desert climate, so they're introducing them to drip irrigation. But th- they do things better than Americans do, that Americans think, oh, I'm just going to help you all out. I'm just going to throw a wad of cash at you. I'm going to send over a lot of equipment, and that's going to solve your agricultural problems. And so they get their John Deere tractors and their Caterpillar tractors and everything else, and then they drive them for a couple of weeks, and then they just sit in the field because... They can't read the manuals. They don't know what something broke. They don't know how to fix it because they can't read a manual. What the Jews do is they'll send teams in, but some of these countries are Muslim. They don't like Jews. They can't let Israelis come in. So the Israelis come in as a, as a uh, non-governmental organization, not as an Israeli organization, and they provide the same aid, and they teach them how to read. They don't throw gobs of money at them and give them equipment. They, they start off by teaching them how to read. So now they can read the manuals to this equipment that the U.S. and Europe gives them that otherwise would just sit in the field and rust. How practical, how how wise that is in their approach. So they do a lot of different things like that. Uh, they're quite helpful. Uh, they've developed some things like, when, you know, when you take uh, potatoes and you put them in storage and they'll start sprouting uh, out of the eyes in the potato. You know how to keep that from happening? Well, they discovered that you bathe it in a mint oil and it won't sprout anymore. If you, uh, most apples can, are stored a year, I found out, before they ever make it to the store. And, and if you take a Granny Smith apple, and if you store it at a degree or two above freezing, it'll keep for well over a year, but the skin will start to turn brown. It'll start to oxidize. So what they discovered is if you put Granny Smith apples in a uh, low oxygen environment for two or three hours, then it will never, that skin won't turn brown anymore. Uh, you don't have to keep it in that low oxygenated environment for long, just two or three hours, and that takes care of it uh, forever. Lots of little, little things like that that they develop. They, they've got systems where they put um, uh, little sensors in every plant, and they measure the water intake of the plant when it's had enough, when it's down at the bottom of the cycle, and so this sensor then sends out a signal as to when that plant needs water, and so and when it has had too much water, and so that measures in, in the desert uh, environment where water is very precious. It you have drip irrigation which targets water to each plant, and you're not just just wasting any water. Uh, the Israelis have developed uh, desalination plants, and they've also uh, developed plants for um, cleaning up the water so that 80% of the irrigation water that they use uh, comes from uh, sewage water that has been uh, uh, com- treated and completely uh, purified. And so they're doing remarkable things like that, and this technology, of course, is u- then used in the rest of the world. So just some of the ways in which 
Uh, Israel is a blessing to other nations. But the other part of Romans 12 that we see is that there's a promise from God that he will bless those who bless Israel and that he will curse those who curse Israel. And in the Hebrew, there are two different words for curse in verse 3. The first word is a strong word for judgment. I will harshly judge those who... And then the second word for curse is a word that, that if we wanted to put that in the, in the vernacular, we would say, I will strongly judge those who diss you. It's, it's a slight disrespect. It's treating them lightly, casually, without respect. So it's not just a matter of I'm going to judge those who treat you badly. It's I'm going to harshly judge those who treat you with disrespect. It's a, it, it has serious implications. And so this is the foundation for understanding why anti-Semitism is wrong. But anti-Semitism is a scourge that has entered into Western civilization via the church. That is a great shame for uh, the, the body of Christ to bear is the way that we shifted away from a devotion to the literal meaning of the text in order to uh, uh, go with an allegorical interpretation which led to a complete rejection of Israel. I saw one... Uh, painting mural on a building. Notice there's a, uh, the green is a clear giveaway. Notice uh, this is their view of Israel. See, it's Palestine. It's all one country. It's not Israel. It's pa- this, this, was in, uh, this was in a little village just, uh, or it may have even been in, uh, it may still be Nablus, but on the northern, outside the northern end border or boundary of Na- the city of Nablus, is um, is where ancient Samaria, where Ahab had his palace, where that's located. It's a really neat archaeological site. Uh, it's where Herod rebuilt it as Sebastia, dedicating it to uh, uh, Augustus. And as you're coming out of that that uh, uh, archaeological site down into Nablus, there was this uh, uh, mural where you got Che Guevara here and... Uh, 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 Mahmoud Abbas here. I'm not sure who that is. And you have your basic uh, uh, weapons of, uh, uh, you know, your your uh, assault weapons here, whatever they are. I'm not sure what they are. But anyway, you get the idea. And this is just promoting the violence and of the of the Palestinian narrative. Now, as we look at the passage in in, in Genesis 12, I want to show you a couple of things that uh, was really neat for us to pick up on on this, this trip, and it relates to Genesis chapter 12. If you just skip down a few verses, what we learn following God's call from Abraham to Lechlachah to get out of his country and to go to the place God is going to show him, uh, after his father dies, he leaves Haran, he heads south into the land of Canaan, and as he passes through the land of Canaan, verse 6, we read, Abram, uh, Avram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, or Shechem as it's pronounced in Hebrew, as far as the terebinth tree or the oak tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Avram and said to your, to your descendants, I will give this land. 
And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the first altar that he built in the land is there in Shechem. Shechem is the ancient site of Shechem, and the archaeological site of Shechem is located right in the middle of Nablus, which is one of the major uh, Arab cities in uh, Samaria. And so we had an opportunity to visit uh, that location. And then we're told in verse uh, 8, here we I have this up on the slide, in uh, verse 8 he says, And he moved from there, so Avram is up there, that's a little bit to the north of this location in the slide, and he moved south, and he moved there to the mountain east of Bethel. Now I'm on a north-south highway looking due west, and there's this mound on the other side of that hill, I mentioned this Thursday night, on the other side of that hill is the archaeological site of Bethel. And on the, that's on the west side of the highway. On the east side of the highway, you have two hills there. The one on the left, just on the other side of it, is the location of Et, what is called Ettel, which is the uh, traditional site of Ai. And to the right, you have uh, uh, El Maktir on the other side of that hill. Notice the poor Palestinian homes that are there, those poor, deprived, impoverished Palestinians. We'll see some better shots of those houses in a second. Uh, but Ai was either just the other side of the hill on the left or the other side of the hill on the right. And the highway is where I'm standing. I turned to my left and took the first shot, turned to the right and took this shot. And this is the hill. He says he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. That's that hill right there where those trees are. Uh, And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. I just thought that was so neat. That was just, you know, you could just sit there and say, right there, that's where Abraham camped and built an altar to the Lord. And you know it from these archaeological sites. So that's uh, that was fascinating. Now what I want to show you is some video. And this first video is from... Um, let me make sure I got all these right. Yeah, here's, here's the shot from Bethel. Uh, on, you see the highway... This hill is the hill to the west with Bethel on the other side. This is going north, and to my right is the uh, uh, Etel and the site of Ai. So let's, um, here we go. Now, we shouldn't have any audio on this. I'll just notice the big mansion over there. That's a big palace, somebody who's somebody. Very large houses here, very well-to-do Arab villages here. Uh, This is uh, El Maktir on the right, and on the left, uh, on the other side, that would be Etel, but this is the two locations that they believe were AI. There's some debate over that right now, uh, Bryant Wood, who works with the Associates of Biblical Research, believes it's at Tel Maktir, which is on the other side of that uh, particular hill uh, where I'm focused right now. Then as you move, I'm going to pan back on this shot. You'll see the large Palestinian house right there, probably had at least 10 or 12 bedrooms. Come back across the highway and now looking at the hill where Abram camped and where Bethel is located on the far side of that particular 
uh, particular hill. So that gives you a little better uh, moving action of what it's like there. It was extremely bright, as you can tell. Okay, now I want to go to this particular site. Now, we're going to have some sound here, Eddie. And what you're going to hear, we'll turn it up, but sometimes the voice fades a little bit. I've listened to it. It's not significant. What you'll hear well is the voice of Andrew Cross. It's John Cross's son explaining the significance of this site. And this is, we're on Mount Gerizim. And looking down in the valley here, this is Nablus. And over here is Mount Ebal. Now, what you will notice is that Mount Ebal was the mountain when, when uh, the Israelites came in under Joshua. They divided up six tribes on Mount Gerizim, six tribes on Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim was the, tri- was the mountain of the blessing. There's, there's greenery there. There's water there. Mount Ebal is dry. Notice there's nothing really growing up on Mount Ebal. That was the mountain of the curses. Just interesting how that works out. What uh, Andrew will explain is that it's a, it was very hazy when we were there the whole two weeks. But you see this mountain here and another mountain over here, and there's a valley that comes down between them. That's the way Jacob would have come in his return from being with Laban up in Haran. And as he came into this area, he settled at uh, Shechem. And Shechem is located... Uh, right in this area right here. This is the uh, archaeological site for Shechem, right in the middle of Nablus. So this, um, um, I want to go back to the slide presentation just a minute. And this is the lookout sign that he's uh, looking at right there in, in front of that screen, but you can see it better in this shot. From this location, uh, this what it reads, one can see biblical Shechem, uh, Tel uh, Balata, and Joseph's tomb. Uh, Tel Shechem spreads out over 40 to 50 dunam and contains, that's something like an acre, and contains remains of a settlement from the middle Canaanite period to the Roman period from roughly 2000 B.C. to 70 A.D., uh, the tell was excavated by a number of expeditions during the years 1913 to 1964. The excavations revealed remains of a fortified city that included walls, gates, a temple, and more. The Bible and other historical sources des- describe Shechem uh, numerous times as an important central city that controlled the junction where the Central Hills Road met the road that ascends from the Jordan Valley to the coastal plain. All of the beginnings of the nation of Israel occurred at Shechem. Here, Abram... Uh, Abraham received the original promise that he would inherit the land, Genesis 12:7. Here Jacob purchased the part of the field where in the future Joseph, his son, would be buried uh, and got to visit Joseph's tomb, uh, Joshua 24:32. At Shechem, the tribes of Israel performed the first ceremony of the covenant upon their entrance into the promised land, Joshua 8, 30 to 35. At the end of Joshua's life, he made a covenant with the nation at Shechem that they, uh, where they then placed a large stone, Joshua 24, 26, which stands until this day. Isn't that cool? The Bible's not just a story of something that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's right here on this planet, and you can go right to that location and, and see it. So that's... Uh, that's the sign that we're looking at in this uh, uh, in this video. Where you were? Okay, okay, right, right in there. I got you. Okay. 
Okay, so. Yeah, so when Jacob uh, and Abraham as well, when they came down from the Haran, they they came down um, through the Jabbok River, or through the, the, the Jabbok um, Valley. They crossed the Jordan River, and then they came up the Wadi Farah, and then it came up through this pass here. Uh, you can kind of see the V, mm-hmm. and it's actually quite a steep little canyon in there. They, they would have come up there, and then they... They set up their tents here before uh, Shechem. So, you know, it's a real nice plain here. It's a very fertile area. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where the story with, you know, Dina and uh, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. you know, his sons Levi and Simeon go up and, you know, slaughter all the guys in Shechem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The sons of Hamor. So it was right there. Um, that, that was where it took place, was all in that city there. And that's a, it's a, it's a very... It's one of the early cities. It's got middle bronze walls, very heavily fortified. Uh, and we'll go down there and walk around. And so which way are we looking here, kind of northeast? We're looking uh, pretty much straight. Ebal is north here. Yeah, so that would be just a little bit uh, yeah, northeast. And Ebal is, you know, it's a completely bald hill, whereas Gerizim has a lot of trees on it. And the reason for that is there's actually a lot of springs here in this uh, in this in this hill, and so it makes it green. So when Joshua and uh, the you know the Israelites came up here, and this is where they confirmed the covenant, and it says that the the uh, curses were spoken to that mountain and the blessings to this mountain. And you kind of almost picture because this is really a natural entity. By the way, this initial shot, you're looking across at this hill over here called the Hill of the Three Seas. From the top, you can see the Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean, and the Dead Sea. And the most often phrase used following that statement by the guides is, on a clear day, (laughs) if that happens. So I've been there twice, and it's been hazy like this both times. So there's not much you can do about that. And I want you to notice, too, see how the the, uh, housing density out around this area, and then it changes right here. See how crowded that is? That's the the refugee center uh, uh, city within Nablus for the Palestinian refugees. So it just all of a sudden changes. And when you drive through Nablus, you see it, and it just looks like a, a super ghetto. So that was the site of well, uh, he'll, he'll, his, his voice picks up in just a minute. These wells down Joseph's tomb is uh, right down. Uh, so this is looking, still looking at the plain. Mount Ebal is going to be over here on the left a little bit. See, this is, this is ancient Shem here. So Sychar was right right in this area and Sychar is the city where um, uh, dealing with the issue the woman at the well and um, remember in in, um, uh, and that's located very close to to Shechem and also in this area they sprung up after uh, after the the, the Maccabees uh, John Heracnus came and basically destroyed uh, Mount Gerizim destroyed the Samaritan Temple, and, uh, and 
he destroyed the water system. And so, with the water system destroyed, they ended up building a smaller town just on the outskirts of Okay, what he's talking about is at the time of the Hasmonean Revolt, they came in and they wiped out the Samaritans because they had an alternate worship system, and then they rebuilt the area. How can you give me this water? I have because I have such a long ways to go to uh, to go get this water to draw it from the well. And what she's talking about is the hardship for the people uh, to have to go to the well and draw up the water by hand. See the refugee city. Anyhow, later on, I'll just talk while that's while that's going because yeah, we can't so hear a, him very well. But you can uh, see that now. density of the population and, there. Yeah, this is Garrison. Lots of trees. And uh, the reason Garrison has so many trees is that it's it's got many springs in it. And so, uh, you know, when Joshua brought the Israelites up here. When he's talking about the woman, the woman at the well, there's uh, that's in the middle of a church. We couldn't take any pictures inside the church, uh, inside where the well was. But the well's 40 meters down. And that was really neat because you got to get, they brought water up from the well and you got to drink water out of that, out of Jacob's well. And it was cold and clear and tasted great. So that was a great little experience there. So that's just some of the sites that I wanted to show you this evening. Each week we'll have a couple of more little things that uh, we can look at. Uh, some of them are going to be different lectures from different guides. Uh, I'm, I'm, I videoed most of this not because I'm a pro- professional or intend to use it professionally. It gives you a chance to hear and see some of it. But it's um, uh, it's how I take notes. Is I can't write it all down, but I can video and record it, and most of it's uh, most of it's audible enough to where you can pick up the main thing. Some of it's better than up there. It was very windy, and so there were conditions that were fighting against getting the, the best sound, and that was something I fought the whole week, even with. Uh, getting the proper windscreen and everything else for the camera. When you're fighting a 30-mile-an-hour crosswind, there's not a whole lot you can do to protect the microphone on the camera. So, that's uh, But it's st- still helpful. gives you that insight. So next time we're going to come back, and we're going to get into this whole issue of replacement theology and anti-Semitism uh, because that is so endemic today and give you some new insights on some things that are that are taking place today and things that are going on. Uh, God is faithful, though. He has not forgotten Israel, and he's not going to forget us. God has not permanently turned his back on Israel, and no matter what we do, God is not not going to permanently turn his back on us. We can't lose our salvation. Israel cannot lose their position in the plan of God. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to reflect upon your faithfulness and your, your role in Israel and your purpose for Israel. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we continue our study on, on these passages, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.